Hello, I love you, and tell me your name. Hello! It's 12 minutes past five on Thursday, the 18th of March, 2021, and you're listening to The Blondie Show. I am Blondie, and today I'm going to be talking about talking, that oh-so-sophisticated method of communication that sets us apart from our mammal counterparts, and from all other earthly creatures, for that matter. It may interest you to know that I myself have not always talked in exactly the way I am talking to you now. No one I grew up with does not drop their T's or not pronounce going to, gonna, nor does anyone in my family, and the decision to try to train myself to not was one I consciously made not so long ago. My making of this decision was perhaps unsurprisingly, intrinsically linked with my making of another decision, being the decision to prepare, record and release 20-something minute-long monologues like the one you are currently listening to on a somewhat regular basis. I should state now, for the sake of clarity, that I do not view the habit of dropping T's and amalgamating any number of words into one as one that is wrong and ought to be corrected. On the contrary, the stark contrasts between the accents of peoples a mere matter of miles away from each other in what we call Great Britain is, to me, a principal justification for doing so. I do, however, view the ability to reflect in our words, and in our delivery of them, the kind of people we are, as one that ought to be taken advantage of to the fullest. Another man conveyed what I mean to say far better than I ever could, not in this century, but the last. What he said was this. Of all the talents bestowed upon men, none is so precious as the gift of oratory. He who enjoys it, wields a power more durable than that of a great king. He is an independent force in the world, abandoned by his party, betrayed by his friends, stripped of his offices. Whoever can command this power is still formidable. Those were the words of Sir Winston Churchill. I do not know when he spoke or wrote them, but they ring true, as anyone who has studied his life will attest. Indeed, it could be, and I'm sure has been argued, that considering the fact that he never built up a regional power base in the country, nor a personal following at Westminster, that he changed his party allegiance twice, that his judgment was often faulty, that his administrative talents were uneven, and that his understanding of ordinary people was minimal, oratory was, in fact, Churchill's only real instrument. That the words which Churchill wrote over the course of his life, which, by the way, amount to a number north of 20 million, can be found in so many books, in so many libraries, homes and offices, and, I would have thought, in the home office, goes some way to fortify his maxim that words are the only things that last forever. Whether or not that's strictly true is something only time will tell, but it's certainly safe to say that even if their meanings are bound by fate to change beyond recognition, words are right up there with the sun, the moon and the stars in the charts of permanence. Their continued existence, of course, somewhat depends upon our own. When we hear or read a word or phrase and it resonates with us, it lodges itself in a part of our brain where it stays until a moment in which it feels appropriate to call upon it presents itself, at which point we do and we voice it or write it down to be heard or read by someone else who may in turn do the same. And so goes the seemingly endless cycle of registration, recollection and reapplication. And it goes on and on and on, almost unbeknownst to us. 
one of my stepchildren slash flatmates often says to her mother that she is, I quote, like a diamond in the sky, a compliment which I had always, perhaps naively, thought so sweet in sentiment that it could only possibly have been formed in her own three-year-old brain until I heard her singing a few mornings ago and realised that she had lifted it from the popular nursery rhyme Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Misunderstandings are inevitable. It is a fact of life. Some misunderstandings are of very slight consequence. For instance, if you bring home 47 pairs instead of the 4 to 7 pairs that your partner instructed you to bring home, you are not inconvenienced beyond having an abundance of pairs to get through. But some have very grave repercussions indeed. The Derek Bentley case, which I am about to outline, is considered by many to be one of the most infamous examples of such a misunderstanding in this country of recent-ish times. Derek Bentley was hanged at Wandsworth Prison on the 28th of January 1953 for the murder of a policeman whose death occurred in the course of a burglary attempt. It was not Bentley himself who murdered the policeman, at least it was not Bentley who pulled the trigger, so to speak, but his then 16-year-old accomplice, Christopher Craig. The pair were seen breaking into the warehouse of the Barlow and Parker Confectionery Company in Croydon by its neighbours and subsequently reported to the police, who soon arrived at the scene. One policeman, Detective Sergeant Frederick Fairfax, climbed up the drainpipe onto the roof where he found the two teenagers and grabbed hold of one of them, Bentley, but Bentley soon broke free. What happened next is uncertain, but it is understood that Fairfax ordered Craig to give him the gun and that Bentley told him to let him have it, a phrase which, apparently, Craig registered as a colloquialism rather than a literal instruction. Instead of surrendering the gun... He fired it and struck Fairfax in the shoulder. Soon after, Craig fired again, shooting one police constable, Sidney Miles, the first of the other police officers to reach the roof, in the head, killing him instantly. Soon after that, Craig had exhausted his ammunition and been cornered by the remaining officers, and it was at this point that he, having come to the conclusion that the jig was well and truly up, a conclusion that it is widely assumed that his counterpart, Bentley, had himself reached some all-important moments earlier, leapt off the roof and fell some thirty feet onto a greenhouse, fracturing his spine and left wrist. It is, of course, a hypothetical, but had Derek Bentley said give him the gun instead of let him have it, this story may well have had a very different ending. He might still be alive today, having served only a short stint in prison, as Craig, who was himself exempt from the death penalty on account of his age, did. And Sidney Miles might have died 15 or 20 years ago, having lived a long and happy life. It cannot be said that the Derek Bentley case is not an important one, not least because of the pivotal role it played in the campaign to abolish capital punishment in this country, but it was not unique in its nature. For though the repercussions were admittedly of their time, the mistake of using words that can be interpreted in any other way than the way in which they were intended to be interpreted is a mistake that is made frequently by all people and has been since the dawn of verbal communication and one that I expect will continue to be made by all people for many millennia to come. 
As it happens, the hot topic of all of today's major newspapers is another case of who said what to who. I'm referring, of course, to the allegation of racism made by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex against an unspecified member of the royal family. It is not unlikely that you, whether you go in for this type of news or not, will know everything that can currently be known about the circumstance under which the allegation was made. If you do, I ask that you kindly bear with me for a few moments while I recount the details of it for the convenience of those who don't, and to refresh the memories of those who did at the time of this episode being made live, but are listening to it in the distant future. The year is 2021. The month... March. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's interview with Oprah Winfrey has just aired on ITV to an audience of 11.1 million Britons, having already been watched by 17.6 million Americans. In it, the couple cited covert racism within the royal family as one of the reasons behind their decision to step down from their posts as senior members of it and relocate. To be specific, which it appears the royal couple and I disagree on being an imperative in circumstances such as these, the Duchess said that her husband had said to her that a senior member of the royal family had expressed to him what she called concern over the prospective colour of their then unborn baby's skin. Let's assume, for the sake of argument, that a concern-ridden comment was made. We, the people, will likely never know what that comment was, nor who said it. The Duke and Duchess are adamant that they will not disclose such information. But the words that formed it were of consequence. Likewise, the words which Prince Harry used when reporting said comment to his wife were of consequence, and the Duchess's words on the matter, especially given the proverbial mountain from which they have been shouted, have been of further consequence, as she no doubt knew they would be. The extent of these consequences is something that those listening to this episode in the future, whose memories the rundown of events I just gave serve to refresh, will be in a far better position to say than I currently am. But to list some of the immediate ones... Several people stand as accused as each other of being racist, as if they were characters in an Agatha Christie murder mystery, despite the fact that only one of them is supposed to have made the comment. The conversation of whether or not we ought to abolish the monarchy entirely has been reignited, an approach which, rather confusingly, seems to be favoured by the same people who are angry that they are no longer paying for the security of the two multi-millionaires and their child who have themselves stepped away from it. And despite one of their principal reasons for doing so being that they wish to be left alone by the press, not least because of their firm stance on the basic right that every family deserves, being the right to address whatever business needs addressing in privacy, the Duke and Duchess are dominating the headlines to a far greater degree than they have done since the first official step of the aforementioned stepping away was stepped, some comparatively quiet 11 months ago. I have drawn a parallel between the Derek Bentley case and the ongoing situation with the Sussexes to illustrate that deliberation over one's choice of words is just as essential a mechanism in a person now as it was 69 years ago, if not more. Admittedly, even saying the wrong thing at the wrong time will not earn oneself a spot on the actual gallows. Nothing will. Not in this country, at least. But the technological advances of the 21st century have brought with them fresh dangers. Dangers that were, in Derek Bentley's adolescence, warned of by way of a science fiction novel called 1984. Ironically, 
it has long since seemed to me that 1984 was an altogether better time to be alive than 1949, the year in which the book was published. But it's 2021 now, and never in recorded history has the gulf between what is proven to have been said or done and what fits a popular narrative been so wide, so often, and never before have so few people cared. Whilst I consider the task of setting them right to be of the utmost importance, I have some sympathy for those who are merely indifferent to fact. That indifference is unfortunately a symptom of the world we are living in. But towards those who actively shout down, fire and ostracise anyone who attempts to remind them and the rest of the world of the fact that a fact that they do not like is a fact nonetheless, who, were they to have it their way, would ensure that lunacy prevailed and that true democracy was smashed into pieces, I must confess, I struggle to feel anything but anger. I feel a personal desire to let these loathsome creatures know my opinion of them, and a duty to my fellow man to remind them that my opinion of them, as deeply rooted as it may be, is not worth a penny more nor a penny less than theirs of me, and more importantly, that the combined worth of both of our opinions of each other is still not equal to that of one single fact. There is a trend in, or rather a method of, communication that's rise in popularity has been synonymous with that of the saying-nothing-at-all approach, which is, of course, the second most effective approach to render oneself exempt from ostracism, the first being the saying-what-everyone-else-is-saying approach. I'm talking about emojis. A lot of people think that I hate emojis. To those people, I say this. Hate is a strong word but at least it's a word. I could delve into great detail about how the many once great civilizations that came to depend too heavily upon pictorial symbols to communicate have since been snuffed out, and conversely, I could note the positive correlation between those who have seen language as something that does not need further simplifying and those who have excelled in their efforts to simplify that which does. But I am aware that, to use a supremely unoriginal phrase of the moment that is itself often accompanied by a flurry of emojis, it's not that deep. So let's move on. Lord knows it would be the first time Perhaps I wouldn't mind emojis quite so much if I felt that the foremost purpose that they serve, to relieve us of the admittedly arduous task of putting words together, wasn't already being more than adequately served by figures of speech, which, it may come as no surprise to you to learn, rank highly on my list of reasons to be cheerful. In the next segment, I will share with you some figures of speech, what some of the lesser-known ones mean, and some of their more interesting origin stories. She said, hey, I know you and you cannot sing. I said, there's nothing you should hear me play piano. One figure of speech which I have never once used myself, but is said to me on an almost daily basis, is my hands are tied. 
I won't waste time explaining what it means. You no doubt know. But I will share with you a memory in which someone sprung on me a variant of my hands are tied that I had never before heard and have never heard since. I was staying in a rather fancy hotel in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and I went down from my room to the hotel restaurant to have dinner. I walked into the restaurant, and the maitre d' bolted after me and blocked my path. I asked her what the matter was, and she explained to me that the restaurant had a strict dress code and that if I wanted to dine in it, I'd have to wear trousers. I told her that I hadn't packed any, which was a white lie, to which she said that if it were her house, she'd let me in, but it wasn't. I was baffled by this figure of speech, because the way in which she said it did suggest that it was a figure of speech. I know that, generally speaking, figures of speech are to be simply understood rather than literally picked apart, but I couldn't help wondering under what circumstances I might ever be at her house, and if ever I was, why she should expect a gold star for not enforcing a dress code. Another commonly used figure of speech that's meaning I need not explain is, I'm not going to lie. My sister employs this prefix so regularly that it would save her a great deal of time and breath if she were instead to only inform me of when she is about to lie. This reminds me of another less-known figure of speech that a friend of mine who is Sithifrican starts many of his sentences with. He says, Look, not to be a cant, but about 15 times a day, before being just that. It's also worth noting that he closes many of his sentences with the suffix, but that doesn't leave this table. Figures of speech, like all assemblages of words, can easily be adapted to suit one's company. For instance, if one was having dinner with their in-laws for the first time, they might favour saying that someone couldn't organise a piss-up in a brewery, as opposed to a shag in a brothel, that they are about as useful as a chocolate teapot rather than a nun's tits, and that they are as silly as a sackful of monkeys instead of mad as a bag of twats. The old stiff one-eye is a figure of speech which I don't believe is used very often at all. Jack Nicholson says it in the James L. Brooks film As Good As It Gets when expressing concern over whether or not his gay neighbour, played by Greg Kinnear, is going to attempt to have sexual relations with him on a road trip to Baltimore. I suppose that there are already so many figures of speech that say the same thing. A favourite of mine which I had forgotten about until sitting down to prepare this episode is... If something's something, then I'm Belinda Carlyle, which is used to express serious doubt over whether something is what someone claims it to be. Pigs might fly is similar in its meaning, though is, of course, only used when talking of the future. Another one that just came to me talking of flying pigs is the moon on a stick, as in I'm not exactly asking for the moon on a stick here, am I? A figure of speech which often follows or is followed by, my hands are tied. In the Billy Wilder film Sabrina, Sabrina, who is played by the gorgeous Audrey Hepburn, is told by her father that she is reaching for the moon in pursuing David, the man with whom she has been infatuated since she was a little girl, to which she replies, No, father, the moon is reaching for me. 
Built like a brick shithouse is used to illustrate that someone is gigantic in stature. Its origin is relatively self-explanatory. A shithouse is an outhouse used for urinating or defecating in. A brick one would itself be gigantic in stature on account of the fact that bricks, unlike emojis, have some depth to them. Another one that can be taken more or less literally is I couldn't give a rat's ass, but we don't use it much in England because pronouncing it ass seems like an inappropriate bastardization of the phrase and pronouncing it ass seems even wronger. As a rule of thumb, if for whatever reason the use of a word doesn't seem quite right, we tend to substitute it almost subconsciously for a fuck. To give you an example of the English way of saying the aforementioned Americanism in a sentence, Frankly, my dear, I don't give a fuck. One in a million is an often said figure of speech that's charm somewhat depends upon it not being taken literally. Whilst saying that someone is one in a million is a compliment, it does also mean that there are another 67 equally agreeable versions of that person in the UK alone, should the relationship go tits up. Tits up is a 20th century figure of speech. It has been suggested that the term derives from the behaviour of aeroplanes' altitude indicators that turn upside down when faulty and display an inverted W, resembling a gravity-defying pair of breasts. The best thing since sliced bread is perhaps the most famous figure of speech of all time. It beckons a string of as-of-yet unanswered questions, like what was the best thing prior to sliced bread? Was toasted bread the thing that the phrase was first used to describe? Did the neighbour of the person who coined the phrase become madly jealous of the praise that they were being showered in and repeatedly try and fail to popularise variants of the phrase like the best thing since sliced toasted bread, the best thing since sliced toasted buttered bread, the best thing since sliced toasted buttered bread with baked beans, the best thing since sliced toasted buttered bread with baked beans and fresh tomatoes on top? This segment could well go on and on and on until the cows come home, whatever that means. But I do so love being told that this podcast leaves people wanting more, and I'd like for it to continue to do so. In light of what I just said, and in light of the fact that I am sick and tired in every sense of the phrase, I am now going to bring this episode to a close. If you have sat in your seat listening to all that I have said today, waiting patiently for the traditional post-rant treat that is the submissions segment, then I am sorry to disappoint you. There will be no submissions segment today. I do, however, intend to share your answers to the question I posed over Instagram last week in the not-too-distant future. That question was, have you ever sent a text or email to one person thinking that you were sending it to another, and if so, what ensued? If you have an answer you would like to share with me and have not yet done so, and wouldn't mind me sharing it with anyone willing to listen, then please do email it to jess at blondie.com. That's jess with two s's at blondie with a y dot com. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Blondie Show. I sincerely hope that I have proven myself right in my theory that though it may be a laborious one, the process of putting some thought into what words to say and in what order to say them before saying them makes for a podcast worth listening to. So goodbye, 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 goodbye. I know I need hardly say how much I love your casual way. Oh, but please put your tongue away, a little higher, and we're well away. The dark nights are drawing in, and your humour is as black as them. I look at yours, you laugh at mine, and love is just a miserable lie. You have destroyed my flower-like life, not once, twice. You have corrupt my innocent mind, not once, twice. I know the wind-swept mystical air, it means I'd like to see your underwear. I recognize that mystical air. It means I'd like to seize your underwear. What do we get for our trouble and pain? Just a rented room in Wally Range. What do we get for our trouble and pain? Wally Range. Goodbye.